There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today we're chatting with Ashley Fell about work well-being. Ash is a social researcher, author, TEDx speaker and the director of communications at McCrindle, an internationally recognised research agency. Ashley and Mark McCrindle, the managing director of McCrindle, have recently launched their latest book, Work Wellbeing. It explores what work well-being is, why it's important and how to achieve it, whether you're an employee, a manager or a business owner. So enjoy the chat. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley. I'm a HR professional. Hello, Em. Hello, Shell. I'm Emily and I work in recruitment and customer experience for a business called Foresight's Recruitment and HR. Today on the show, we're joined by Ashley Fell. Hey, Ash, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. How are you both? We're good as well. Thank you so much for coming and having a chat with us today. Ash, you're the communications director with McCrindle and you've recently launched a new book, called Work Wellbeing. Can you tell us what sort of brought about you deciding to write this book? Yeah, so I've been with um, McCrindle for almost seven years, which is quite a long time in the scheme of things. And being a millennial myself, that's like double the average tenure that someone normally stays in one role, um, which some of the data and all the fun facts that I know being working in a research agency. Um, And so Mark and I have been working really closely together for the last, particularly the last few years. And a big part of our role prior to COVID was going out and speaking at lots of different conferences. Um, And my role as the communications director there is to help give a voice to the all the fun and interesting and really important research that we get to do at McCrindle, which is a real privilege. Um, and it's fascinating because I guess we've been talking about some of these topics that we really delve deep into in the book around work and well-being and culture and leadership and purpose um, and, and leading thriving teams. And we actually were approached by a, um, a publisher at the beginning of last year who saw some of our stuff and said, I we think this is a really great topic. We'd love for you to write a book and we'd love to publish it. Um, so that's how it kind of came about. Can you give us your version of what well-being means and why it's even important? Because you're so right. That is a word that is so popular. It's, dare I say, thrown around quite commonly. And it'd be really nice to hear, how would you define it? You've been through this book writing process, but you also come from that research background. So share with us your insights. Yeah, so it, it's absolutely, that's the case. Uh, well-being is kind of, I feel like this philosophical um, common term that everyone talks about just to describe their health. Um, and it's kind of, I think, something that everyone thinks they should have a handle on, but no one really knows how to define it. Um, I mean, we look at the first chapter in the book is sort of what is work well-being. And, and I guess just to draw on for it, um, to start with, you know, the World Health 
World World Health Organization's definition of well-being is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease, which I think a lot of us already know. Um, And then in the book, we looked at all these different facets of well-being. And for us, we really define well-being as someone who is thriving in um, various aspects of their life. And to help explain that, we've got a few different models and visuals in the book. And one of them that I really um, find helpful to explain um, well-being and all its different facets is this well-being wheel that we've created. And it looks at four different areas of our well-being from the the personal well-being that we have, which is kind of our physical health and fitness, to our mental and emotional and spiritual well-being, to our interpersonal um, aspects. That's kind of the our family relationships and our social relationships with our friends, our financial well-being, so that idea of the current earnings that we need to pay off mortgages and pay off uh, the cost of living uh, in Australia and then the security that's the, that longer term um, future financial aspect and then there's that vocational element of well-being which is more around the impacts that we have with our work and the purpose that work enables us to have uh, and so that's kind of well-being like in and of itself that's how we've sort of defined it and been able to try and describe it but then we've kind of coined this new term work well-being and it's funny the other day my mum was like I love your new book workplace well-being and I was like mum it's not called workplace well-being it's called work well-being <laughs> um, and so because that's workplace well-being is a really common term that everyone uses and knows but for us we wanted to look at the role of work in our lives um, elevate it because it's so important it's not just something that we do it's not just drudgery you know that we just we've got to work these five days to get to the weekend, which some people do if they're not in an enjoyable role or in a, in a great place with their work. Um, but we wanted to, yeah, really expand the idea and it's, you know, work wellbeing is more than workplace wellbeing, which I think typically is the ergonomic furniture, the, the workplace right. practices, whereas work wellbeing is sort of more a philosophical culture, leadership, intentional aspect. And, and I'm glad we did because, again, a lot of people aren't in there tangible workplaces at the moment that their work is their home so it's yeah it's it's got I think some real relevance for the current context we all find ourselves in. I love that Ash in terms of uh, work is such a huge part of our lives and actually calling out when you look at that wheel and there's all different things that make up well-being but work serves as such a big chunk of our lives and time and the other day I was talking to someone and they were saying to me I work to take holidays and, and it's kind of what you were saying before of you work to have a weekend, but it's got to be more than that because if we're spending 40 plus hours in our job per week, you can't re- – there has to be more value and purpose that you get from work than just working to take a break. Can you – I guess when I think about well-being, I'm, I see so many people who are stressed or they're unhappy or they're disengaged at work, which is a far cry from wellness or well-being – what are some of the barriers that you see to having well, well-being at work? Yeah, so we did a lot of research for this book, as you can imagine, being a research agency. So last year we were running lots of surveys and then we've run a lot of surveys as well this year around COVID and and how that's transformed work. So we were able to quickly apply some of those in the, in the final edit of the manuscript before it went to print. And it was really fascinating, I guess, to ask um, questions of employed Australians. And one question that really was illuminating in terms of what the barriers are for a lot of Australians um, to them and, and blockers to them thriving at work. So the, the number one uh, barrier or blocker was people being overworked and stressed. Uh, so 31% of Australians had said that. The next barrier, um, according to our research, was management structures and hierarchy, followed by leadership, 
a lack of resources and training, general culture, fellow co-workers, lack of trust and fairness, lack of clear direction and vision, job insecurity, and a focus on profitability. So just what I listed then, that was in order of um, the responses of Australians. So yeah, it was it was really interesting to see so many areas aside from the kind of the, the big one with people being overworked and stressed by their workloads um, or their role. Really, a lot of them focused on leadership, and and we look at other um, other ones in the book and in this whole chapter about barriers to work well being around you know burnout, that the toxic workplaces, too much of a focus on return on investment. If if leaders are really focused on that bottom line, but not on the culture or the community of a workplace, a lack of trust, which many leaders have had to overcome over the last few months with whole workplaces and workforces, you know, work, working remotely and, and trusting people are getting the work done. And also the, the kind of idea of well-being programs can actually be a bit of a barrier to, to well-being. And what I mean by that is, you know, that Band-Aid solution. And, you know, there's some really interesting stories of workplaces who who go, oh, we'll, we'll provide everything for you. We'll provide dry cleaning and, and sleep pods um, and dinner services so that you don't ever have to leave. So that's that kind yeah. of idea. And that, that's not that's not helpful for our well-being either. They don't tell you the, the so you don't have to ever leave bit though. They just tell <laughs> you right. we're going to offer you all these wonderful things. And then the consequence uh, that you find yourself in is, you're right, Ash, you, you don't leave. And there are a few particularly big brands that, um, that have all those perks in inverted commas. So many of what you just rattled off, so many of those, as you've pointed out, do relate to leadership. I'm curious to understand from your perspective, what role what role does leadership play in this? So, for example, if I'm an employee turning up to work, is it is work well-being my responsibility or is it the responsibility of the leaders? And then perhaps if we might just sort of dovetail into understanding what can people actually do about well-being, work well-being in order to improve it? Yeah, it's a really good question and definitely some of the feedback we've got when we've presented some of this research and this data is leaders going, is it just on us? Is it just the responsibility on us to make sure that everyone is well well, and, and their well-being is prioritised? And so much of our well-being happens outside of work, like our family relationships and our physical health. Um, so, I mean, for us, the research with employed Australians, um, we asked this question, who do you think the responsibility of work well-being falls to. And more than 80% of employed Australians said it's the leader's responsibility. And then leaders look at us with the wide eyes and the fear and, and things like that. So that's what employed Australians are saying. And we do believe that leaders have a responsibility to employ I guess, and implement structures and things that better the work well-being of their teams. We know that leadership can be a real um, barrier to people thriving at work, which the research showed, but can also be a real enabler to people thriving at work. And there's lots of things leaders can do. I mean, leaders can make or break a workplace culture. They set the tone and the mood of workplaces often, and, and people are looking to them for what behaviours and ways of working or engaging or communicating are acceptable in a workplace. So I think we don't want to make light of um, their responsibility there, but it doesn't solely fall to them either. Of course, there's different aspects, I think, and that holistic approach to well-being that there is some onus on the employee to look after that. But also I think, um, you know, we're seeing particularly because of COVID, it's not just there's my work life and there's my home life or my work life and my out of work life. And that kind of work life balance term has evolved over time to more workplace integration, sorry, work life integration. And that idea that our work and our life can't be completely separate. I think we need to have 
boundaries and we need to um, make those achievable and sustainable, but also recognizing that, you know, the values that we bring to our work um, relate from our values outside of work. And, you know, we, we can't just leave ourselves at home when we get to the office or get to the workplace. We bring that baggage with us. And so leaders who can understand that and look at someone in a holistic setting um, is really important. And I guess for us, you know, we We talk a lot about leadership in the book, that the largest chapter in the book is on leadership. And so hopefully in that book, there's some really helpful strategies for people to, um, especially leaders, to to feel empowered to actually help their people have well-being at work, not just think it's it's just my responsibility and what can I, what can I do and, and be overwhelmed by that. Do you mind giving us a hint on maybe what one of those strategies are, maybe your favourite strategy? Can you share that with us as a teaser to, the, to reading the book perhaps? Yeah, so one aspect um, and a, a term that we've kind of coined, and it has come out of um, some some research that Mark has been doing particularly. Um, he's doing a doctorate in leadership at the moment and that feeds a lot into the book. And he's coined this new term that we really flesh out in the book called empowering leadership. Um, it kind of evolves from servant leadership and it's looking at how can leaders empower their teams because we know that I guess again contrary to what maybe a lot of people think when you think about well-being perhaps people are thinking it's about yoga and mindfulness and a state of relaxation or or comfort and those things are important rest is important like work is important but well-being particularly when we're at work talking about our vocation and purpose it's also about us learning and growing, especially for millennials, um, for the emerging generations at the beginning of their careers who are looking for engagement, training, professional development, opportunity. And so we look we look at different leadership styles in the book and leading different generations. But one area that seems to transcend all of them is that empowering leadership style. And at Macrunda, we're all about alliteration. And so we've developed these three E's around empowering leadership. And the first E is to encourage. So leaders and I, again, I personally think this can be not just for leaders, but anyone in organization can apply this, whatever level you're at. So the first step is to encourage and to see something in someone and to speak that over them and to speak that into them and to encourage. And the second E as part of empowering leadership is to not just say something nice, um, but to actually equip them. So if we if we just bolster people up with words, but there's no training, they'll fall down and, and failure is an important part of the process. But the third E is to then actually entrust people um, with responsibility. And that's really what we try and do at McCrindle. And that's been my journey of growth. You know, I've, I've had opportunities and, and Mark, I remember, you know, early on in my career saying, oh, I reckon you could do some speaking and speak at conferences. And I was like, you're kidding. There's no way. Um, you know, and then he was like, no, no, I, I believe that you'd be great at it. And then it wasn't just empty words. He actually gave me opportunities and, and gave me some training. So those, that empowering leadership, I think is one way we can improve the well-being of our teams. And that's to encourage, equip and entrust them with opportunities and, and opportunities for growth, particularly. I love that, Ash, of the entrusting a person to grow and stretch and that that actually fosters a sense of well-being where you're given opportunity to kind of get out of your comfort zone. In the book, you talk about that there's catalysts for growth. Can you unpack those for me? Because I found that really insightful of well-being is not just about relaxation, it's about growth. Can you can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it is that idea that, again, particularly when we're leading younger generations, you know, we, we often say people aren't looking for a job, they're looking for an opportunity. And it is an and in our research, we've constantly over the years found um, that when we're talking about 
things that attract people to a workplace. If there is opportunity for advancement or development, that's really key. And I think, yeah, a catalyst for growth, a catalyst around wellbeing is the opportunity to um, step out of your comfort zone, to try something new. And, you know, that's really what we're seeing with the emerging generations, particularly who, you know, they might not leave a job because there's a compelling reason to leave, but because there's no compelling reason to stay. And that relates to purpose um, of an organisation, which we unpack in the book as well, but also this culture of people having opportunities to step out of their comfort zone and to do something. And I love that quote from Richard Branson. I think it's in the, I think we put it in the book, um, who said, you know, if there's a great opportunity and you don't think you should do it, that's when you know you should do it. Because I think so many, and particularly as a, a young female, I know from my experience, it can be, I'm not ready or I'm plagued with insecurity or doubt, but actually, or I'm, I'm not, I don't have all the skills or all the qualifications to do something, so I'm not going to try. Um, but we need to be, you know, leaders and people in our workplaces who, who yeah, give opportunities and encourage us to to, to do things um, that are going to enable us to grow. And yeah, growth is a really big part of well-being. Again, it's not just this relaxing state of sort of comfort. Again, which is still important to have times of rest, but also to um, yeah, to push ourselves to to grow. And and that's I think a really key part of what people are looking for in in their work as well. Job variety, training and development, all those opportunities um, which leaders can really enable the well-being of their teams if they have a focus on that. And interestingly, that in itself, this idea of moving outside of your comfort zone, so much of that is wrapped up in the individual's willingness to do that. Because as a leader, you can make all the offers you like, but unless that individual jumps, you know, two feet in and says, all right, let's give this a go. And to your credit, Ash, you've told your story of of how you've done that um, with your leader, Mark's support and empowerment. Are there any other strategies uh, that come to mind for you in regards to what an individual can do. So where there's where they're not a leader, but they do have a responsibility for their own work well-being, what would you suggest? So we have this um, well-being equation within the book and it's kind of an engagement equation, a well-being equation. And I think leaders will do well to look at that and evaluate their workplaces based on that. But also an individual can look at that and see, you know, what are they doing um, to enhance their own well-being in the workplace, but also the well-being of others. And that um, well-being equation is what we call CPI, so culture, purpose, and impact. And that idea that um, culture is sort of the how you do things, um, the purpose is why you exist, and the, the I is for impact. So, it's celebrating the wins. And I think for us, this is something that we developed uh, a while ago and we've been presenting and getting feedback on and then we tested a whole bunch of things in our research um, for the book, but also we try and live as much as we can, of course, of the book out in our own workplace. Um, and it's been really fascinating because we do lead quite a young team at McCrindle and yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see people take ownership of their own well-being in this way, in the CPI sort of well-being equation. So what are you doing to enhance, you know, the organizational culture around the community, around working with other people, um, you know, and that can be really obvious things um, like, you know, celebrating team birthdays or, um, you know, having moments of fun in the workplace or stopping, which is what our research has shown a lot of people are actually missing when working from home or working in isolation. Um, So, having a culture and a community of people working together. Um, And then purpose. So, you know, people can 
constantly think and evaluate what am I doing at the moment every day that that, that contributes to our organization's purpose. Um, and I guess I think really a big part of the CPI equation is the impact. And it's not probably as commonly used in conversations with leaders because culture and purpose are often things we talk about a lot. But the I part is the impact. And I think that's really key um, because it can also prevent or stop people from burning out. So if people, um, not to take advantage of workers, of course, but if people know how their hard work is contributing to that purpose and they're being celebrated for it, they're being championed. Like for us at McCrindle, we try and start our weekly team meetings. We have two weekly team meetings as a whole team. And every week we try and start those by celebrating the wins of the team and sharing that. Um, and it's a culture moment and it links to the purpose, but we're also celebrating um, that and and where people have been challenged or had opportunities for growth, which we're trying to do that. And, you know, individuals, leaders try and be intentional about that in our workplace, but individuals often will talk about it. Um, so I think evaluating the CPI equation and looking for areas that people can um, yeah, contribute to the culture, can, can, can remind people of the purpose um, and can celebrate the impacts as a team, but also for you individually. Um, that's hopefully something, and, and we've had a lot of feedback that people really enjoy that and can find that a practical way that they can hopefully enhance their well-being at work. I love that of understanding the impact because you're right. I think we do focus on culture and purpose in a business context, but so often we forget the impact we're having because we just move on to the next project, the next task, the next action. But taking a moment to pause as a team, and I think for anyone listening, if you are an individual contributor, you might not be in a leadership role, you can still foster that in your team meeting context by calling it out. You don't have to be the manager of the team to draw attention to the wins. How, Ash, do you do that in your your business context and in, at McCrindle? Are there things that you do to celebrate the success of other people practically that would help some of our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I try and do that as much as possible. And, you know, for us at McCrindle, we, we try and live out lots of principles. And one of those is that empowering leadership where we're giving opportunities to people. And I remember um, one given to me was to start doing media interviews. And it was a few years ago. And, and Mark said, you know, Channel 7 wants someone, they, they always want Mark uh, oftentimes. And he said, I want you to go and do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And media is very like last minute. Um, you know, it's not a week's notice. It's not even 24 hours notice. It's come in this afternoon to talk about this new research um, that someone else has done. We want some a social commentator to talk about it. So um, I remember going through that experience myself. And then now I get to sort of train and coach and give opportunities to other team members as the communications director. So that's really fun. And I think for me, I try and, you know, highlight those people, those wins in a, I guess, a relaxed setting around our, you know, weekly team meetings, just to, you know, bring out the the achievements of other people or to encourage people. Or if I see something, you know, someone's worked really hard on something or they've put in a lot of hours just to to voice that so that they feel like there's a little bit of recognition, which again, we know the emerging generations are looking for in the workplace, as I think, to be honest, all of us are, even the older generations, to be acknowledged for good things that we do or good work or output that we do. Um, but then that can also be like, for me, I'm, I'm such a... <laughs> millennial. I love gifts and memes and obviously they're not always appropriate, um, but sometimes a team email <laughs> with a gif or a meme in it, uh, making sure everyone on the email is internal, not external, uh, just you know, encouraging someone or bringing that positivity can, I think, be something that creates those moments of, of relief because we work really hard at McCrindle. We've got a really um, diligent you know, 
we've got a really big purpose. We've got diligent workers. Um, and I think our, our team leaders are really conscious of people not burning out because people also care about the work they're doing. And I think that's something leaders have got to be careful of when there is a big purpose. People put in the discretionary effort, which is fantastic, but you want to be rewarding that. You want to be acknowledging that and, and looking after your team members as well and going, it's time to go home. Like put put the tools down, pick it up tomorrow. Let's have let's have rest. Yeah. Go home. Um, go be with your family. All those other elements of well being. So trying to keep that in mind, I think, is is something I'm I'm really conscious of, especially after writing a book on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You'll have the book on your desk reminding you every day to be celebrating the wins. It's funny because it sounds really simple in theory of, you know, flick someone an email or just just uh, say something. In passing, uh, congratulating someone on something they've done, but it's actually takes a lot of intentionality because I think we get sucked into the negativity at work and solving problems, and that that can be our primary focus. But actually coming back up and going, you know what, celebrating, and encouraging, and recognizing the achievement of the team is is countercultural and it is important and makes a difference. So I love I love how you've just talked that through, Ash. On the flip side of that, a lot of our listeners uh, reach out to us about working in a toxic culture and what do you do when you're in a toxic environment. You, you sh- shared with us before that culture has a huge impact on well-being. Can you just unpack that a bit for us? When there is a culture of toxicity in a workplace that you don't have as much control over, I definitely empathise with with people who are going through that because that can be really challenging. I think part of it is do all you can to, um, you know, have control over your own work, um, what you're doing for work and to encourage and empower and, um, and build up the people around you and to celebrate the wins. But I think over time, if that doesn't go away, if that workplace is really toxic and it's causing a lot of burnout and stress and mental health, anxiety, depression, if it's impacting you consistently outside of work for elongated periods of time you know Mark and I were discussing this the other day we're like is it too harsh to, to give the recommendation to leave and we we're actually like no because we, we really believe that we spend too much time at work and with the people we work with to put up for that for a long time so hopefully that's not coming across as I just had a bad day at work time to go um, which is you know I think the concern for a lot of leaders leading the emerging generations who are more job mobile you know we say they're going to have 18 jobs across six careers in their lifetime so you know I often talk about attracting and retaining the emerging generations in, in keynotes and workshops and you get this bewildered look of employers going oh my gosh what if I invest in training teams and they just leave and I, I empathize with that too um, but I think there is an element of going evaluating your work and and looking and looking at it and going is this contributing to my well-being overall or is it really inhibiting that and if it's not contributing to it maybe it is time to look elsewhere um, because it yeah it does play too big a part in our lives for us to just accept um, subpar you know work and, and and cultures and how we're treated so that, that's what we believe and yeah hopefully people aren't at that point and they can do things to to enhance that and speak to leaders and, and speak up and and build relationships with people but if it's not working then I think maybe move on and, and find somewhere that that does value you that does value your contribution where you can grow you can be challenged the, the boundaries are respected you can work hard and, and do good work. What was the most unexpected piece of research? One of the areas that I kept sort of coming back to was people being sceptical of the idea of work well-being and just going, is it just a nice to have this this airy-fairy idea of well-being um, versus an actual um, 
I guess, return on in, on investment because it does require an investment of the individual and particularly the employer or the leader. And we know that, again, particularly in the current environment, there's a lot of pressure on workplace leaders to output more with less. There's there's a lot of, um, I guess, things that people are trying to juggle and what, it's nice that workplaces can be a great culture, but work, workplaces and organizations also need to make money if they want to survive. So, there needs to be an element of profitability or KPIs. So, we wanted to sort of not just have this really altruistic, aspirational book, but something that gave some strategies and some practical ways that people can enhance the well-being of themselves and their teams, but also to paint the picture and to make the case that it does correlate to um, positive outcomes and it does affect the bottom line. And we found that it does. That's so good, Ash, because one of the things business leaders care about is the bottom line. And so you mentioned before that in the drive towards profitability can actually detract from well-being. But if businesses can flip the model and say, actually, if we build up the well-being of our staff and organisation and focus on that, that's actually going to drive those return, that ROI and that bottom line and enhance business performance. I think there's a good point in there for um, you, if you're listening today, to be thinking through when you're trying to sell the business case for well-being, that it's not just – sometimes business leaders care more about the money – and the financial performance then about people. And so we acknowledge that it's sad, but it is true. And I guess that's why this book is important because it's it's helping us to shift some of that. But maybe having that conversation with your leader to talk about the business case for how well-being links to the profitability and uh, business performance. It, are there things in the book that people can use as part of that conversation with their leader, Ash, to kind of, I guess, advocate for that? Yeah, take take a copy of the book uh, to the meeting. But I think also, I mean, I think the research is probably something that I hope people feel equipped with when, if they are the person in their team at whatever level of, you know, organizational structure or hierarchy or leadership that they fall into, um, if they do see and they're convinced that this is really important, which I hope they are. Um, and to your point as well around, you know, people are an organization's greatest asset. And so when leaders can organize, you know, acknowledge that and foster that, then we have a place for people to thrive and for the organization to thrive. And then at a really macro level for, for societies to thrive, if we have more organizations, um, you know, prioritizing that. But I think for us, and this is probably coming from my bias as a researcher, because I guess if people and, and bosses and leaders are focusing on that, that ROI aspect and the profitability, then hopefully it's the hard evidence-based data that, that, speaks their language and we've got that in the book um, we've got lots of data we've got lots of tables and graphs that we hopefully explain in a really engaging way that can help make that case and can you know maybe it's look at read chapter um, you know x and and look at the pages I've tabbed because this is the case um, and this is the difference around all those different elements um, for attracting and retaining great people in this organization and I think the other thing for me you know there's that that's the quantitative the hard data the facts but there's also the qualitative the stories um, and the power of stories that was basically my whole TED talk that I delivered a couple of years ago is the power of storytelling and we draw on a lot of stories in the book from 
leaders in the corporate space, in the not-for-profit space, leaders that we know and have worked with, um, that we respect and we look up to and to, to tell those stories. And I think they're two really compelling ways that you can convince someone or make a case for something by looking at the hard data and the facts, but also at the stories. And if people feel comfortable about being vulnerable and sharing with the people in their teams that they work with or their leaders, you know, the impact that a lack of a commitment to wellbeing might be having on them or vice versa, a, a positive story of a commitment to wellbeing uh, that can hopefully be something that we've equipped people with in this book to, yeah, make a positive change or encourage someone else in their organisation to make a positive change around work wellbeing. So good. So for people who are listening today that want to be able to do that little bit of a self-assessment of where they're at in their own wellbeing, how can you kind of gauge, I know you talked about that concept of thriving at work rather than just kind of surviving. Can you talk to us a bit about that, about how you can assess where you're at in your own work well-being? Mm. I think, again, drawing back on some of the research that we did and it's interspersed throughout the book, but, you know, we've we've got questions in there, we've got graphs in there, and I think it is a bit of a self-assessment tool without it formally being the case or labelled the case in the actual book. But you know, we asked the question, how do you feel when you wake up? Like, how do you typically feel most of the time when you wake up on a Monday morning and the work week ahead is before you? And is it, I'm excited and I can't wait to get into it? Is it, oh, like, I'm, I'm mostly excited, but, you know, I'm a bit daunted by the workload or whatever, or I'm, I, I dread it and I'm, you know, I just want to stay in bed. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's times where we just want to do that, even if we love our job, even if we love our work, um, if it's raining outside or if you do have something that, you know, is is an outlier in your work load in the week and it's causing you a bit of anxiety or concern. But I think using some of those um, questions that are located throughout the book and just evaluating where you sit in that. And um, yeah, I think that might be something. I think something else is to build greater well-being at work is to look at that well-being wheel and just to evaluate where you are, where you're at on each of those different elements, and thinking about what you're doing, um, you know, writing down perhaps what you're doing to enhance that. And I remember I was at a conference recently, um, and somebody it was a, it was a workplace wellbeing conference, and it was part of the research for the book. And I went, and there was like 21 speakers across two days. It was it was a lot. Um, so it was this deep immersive um, conference, and one of the speakers was fantastic, and he was talking about how um, you know one of the key roles and the key things people can do for their well-being holistically is to go home from work on time. And it was just really simple, but the way he explained it was when you stay at work late, you you get home late, you have dinner late, you minimize the time spent with family, you go to bed late, you get up early, and then it repeats itself. And I think uh, sleep is something that I've learned a lot about with for the book um, and even so many of us working in the knowledge economy where we need to be creative and cognitive and that's the thing that our research found most people are giving up it's not exercise it's actually sleep we'll go to bed late we'll get up early to exercise and then you know we feel like that's the right priority but actually sleep impacts so much of our physical health as well as our mental capacity our mental health and so I think that's really one practical thing people can do we love finishing on the practical. So uh, you've beaten it, beaten us to it in providing that piece of advice, which uh, makes so much sense. Would there be one other thing that you could suggest that's just as practical for leaders specifically that they can turn up to work and, and start doing uh, in order to increase work well-being for the people that they're responsible for? 
Yeah, I think one thing is, I think a lot of the time, you know, leaders are doing lots of things. Of course, they've got a lot of responsibility and they're doing lots of things um, and they might think they have a gauge on where their teams are at. But um, I wonder and I, I sometimes sort of question whether they do. And I hope that leaders are checking in with their people regularly, whether that's one-on-one catch-ups. Of course, it depends how how big the team is and the sort of structures that are in place. But I think, again, this is probably me speaking as a researcher coming out, but maybe it is about, you know, doing a little staff survey or an engagement survey. And it's a really simple thing, but it can give, you know, a de-identified aspect for people to give feedback and to actually get a gauge. I think for us, research tests and confirms or denies hypothesis. And I think oftentimes, I'm sure we've all, all listeners have been involved where, where a leader, you know, a leader in, in their organization or wherever it might be thinks they're doing a great job, but everyone else is going, oh, I don't know about that. Um, we're all pretty disengaged. We're all experiencing that presenteeism where they're, you know, they're physically present, but mentally not engaged in the work or in the culture. So I think that's one area. And just to get feedback from people and I guess part of that as well is to let people speak into that conversation, speak into the solution, because when we do that, we give people ownership and they're more likely to be involved in that solution rather than a leader just going, this is how we're going to do things from now on. Um, So asking the questions and that kind of Stephen Covey, I'm seeking first to understand, then to be understood um, and to understand where your people are at so that you can respond and bring them on the journey of that and not just sort of dictate because that's that hierarchical command and control leadership style that we talk a lot about in the book as we've moved away from um, towards towards more of that collaborative and contributive leadership style where people are involved in the solution, their voices are can feel heard in the organisation and, yeah, they, that contributes to greater ownership of whatever the leader can implement, I think. So hopefully there's some practicals that, that leaders can implement as well. There's so much value in what you've described of work wellbeing actually has a huge impact on our personal lives, on our health on our effectiveness at work. But I also love that for those who are business leaders, business owners, it actually drives value and profitability for the business as well. So it's got huge benefits. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. It's a real privilege for us to have you on the show. And we so appreciate all that you've spoken about. So Ash, tell us, how do we find more out about the book? Where do we, where do we go? So we've set up a little website that just hopefully makes it really easy for people to find the book, to engage with different resources, um, and that's just simply workwellbeing.com.au. So there's a link to a bit of a blurb about the book, link to Mark and I, um, and also a link to a virtual event that we ran a couple of weeks ago um, launching the book so people can watch that, um, that for free if they're interested. And then, of course, they can buy the book there as well. Beautiful. Well, make sure you jump on, buy the book and watch the virtual webinar. Great to have you hanging out with us. Thanks so much, Ash. Thank you so much for taking the time to share. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. (laughs) See ya. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 